0: That's chumbacasino.com.
1: No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18
0: plus. The lost fathers and the forsaken children. And let them come quickly. For a voice of crying is heard out of Zion. For we are greatly confused. For death has come into our ghettos. To cut off the young men and women from the streets of Philadelphia, New York, L.A., Georgia, Ohio, Florida. Mississippi and throughout America, South America, the Caribbean islands, Africa, Asia, and all over the world. So return unto me, thus saith Yah, and I will return unto you, O my people. 12. Designed, Thomas. Multiplying, Project Sound, yeah. for sacrificial Chow, yeah. the of the Huggies, We curse yeah. drink, lunch, crack, holes, and from the the with yeah. right.
2: crack Press
3: me, step on not neck. Don't the ghetto where
2: I cried in the We have to get up, stand up, turn back on the truth the trend,
0: The more exactly. time, the more
3: Like flavorful iron Tossing fire Leaving Babylon Crying, trying To escape this futile. time Ooh, got This country trouble Is too wild That's why we got For the two style. To that in the situation Too sharp And though the world Is rocky I'm ready to try The next mile To bring sight To the blind man Who's sound to the dead child We will survive In this country wilderness Swimming through the waters Of Babylon Like a river fish Jugglerless Specialist Predatorial Survivalist Splitting heaven
2: Fighting from his lips
4: all I see is All I see is Welcome listeners to Time for an Awakening on Black Talk Radio Network, new media for the new millennia. This is a history and current events program from a cultural perspective we find this program necessary because Hosea 4 6 states my people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge but we as a people can turn this around Proverbs 4 7 states wisdom is the principal thing therefore get wisdom and with all that getting get an understanding standing again welcome to the program this evening with your host brother Elliot and brother Richard the number to reach us to join the conversation this evening is 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832 to participate in the conversation and the show this evening. We're streaming live at several locations. You can go to timeforawakening.com which should be already one of your favorites. Timeforawakening.com will take you to Time for Awakening Media, and you can hear the program live there you can go to www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening and hear the program streaming live there you can uh hear the program streaming live from the tune in app and any of your devices tune in is a free app you can download it if you don't ha- already have it <coughs> on your uh, ipad your iphone your tablet your desktop you can download it and in the search engine just type in time for an awakening and you can hear the program streaming live. And if you have the uh you have your smartphone and you're in your car, you can stream your tune in uh, you can stream the program live even in your car. So there's time for awakening at several locations, including the tune in app. Drop us an email at time at gmail That's time for an at gmail.com. Time for Awakening also has the fan page on Facebook. In the Facebook search engine, just type in Time for an Awakening radio program. There you always see interesting content being posted daily. And when you leave that page, just please hit that like button. At Time for Awakening, a radio program on Facebook. And Time for Awakening media has been launched. And it should already be in your search engines. Just type in timeforanawakening.com. That's timeforanawakening.com will take you straight to Time for an Awakening Media. There you'll see uh, more interesting articles, blogs, podcasts of the programs that you can download, uh, listen at later times, and even share with your friends. So, again, make that one of your favorites. Put it in your address bar. That's timeforanawakening.com. Timeforawakening.com will take you straight to Time for an Awakening Media. Tonight, we have a exciting show scheduled, and a, our very special guest will be joining us this evening. Arthur, community activist, and genealogist, uh, Ms. Antoinette Harrell, will be with us this evening. We're going to be talking about tracing our family history from the plantations and beyond, and we'll get into some of her other work that has led her into. Other areas that I want to kind of share with the listening audience, I wanted to um because it's it's it's, it's an interesting work uh her other work that that kind of stemmed from the uh uh genealogical part of it that uh ties in clearly with the history of our people with slavery and peonage and also ties directly to uh, reparations. So, we, we're going to get into it with our guest this evening. It will be an exciting program, and we'll get things started right after a brief word from our sponsors.
5: Mr. Moderator, our distinguished guests, brothers and sisters, our friends, and, and our enemies. <laughs>
4: Antiquity to the present. Our people need to develop a new paradigm. It's time for an awakening. Sundays, 7 p.m. with your hosts, Elliot and Reggie. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. And uh, before we get started this evening, I want to welcome a hardworking brother, activist here in the city of Philadelphia, a member of several organizations, and is a working member. He doesn't just sit there. And also it's a tour guide at the African-American Museum here in Philadelphia. In fact, he rushed home this evening after a meeting at the UNIA chapter here in Philadelphia. Brother Richard is with us on the line. Brother Richard.
8: How you doing, Brother Uh, Allen? I'm I'm glad you uh, um, bring up that we all are working members. And in in the discussion today, we were kind of dealing with that, that um, the point of not just um, as we see the transition in time, that we have to be about that work, and you know and it's and it's good when it's a part of the lifestyle you know you so it ain't it ain't something a burden you carry it's more a joy um and I believe that's what uh sister Harriet her work in, in this here whole effort of genealogy is it's also something that is not a burden but a joy to discover and to communicate to people how important it is for us to um, look at our family roots and the process you need to go through to do that.
4: Well, I'm going to grab her because I think she's with us on the line, but first I want to uh, give a little introduction to our guest, uh, Miss Antoinette Harrell. She's an author, community activist, but her work and her dedication to family and preserving our family records and her, genealog- and her genealogical research And social justice has set her apart as a genealogist. Ms. O'Reil brings over 20 years experience of genealogical uh, research that has resulted in the Antoinette Harold collections. And uh, she'll tell us where those collections are because they're in two different locations. She also hosts a TV show, African Roots. And she's the founder and editor of the uh, Taladigwa. African-American News. Ms. Harrell is a, a leader in the community and an activist and doesn't just talk about her work, but she does it. Her most recent advocacy work has resulted in assisting the black boys of Dozier Reform School to tell their story. We're going to get into that because that's an important work that she's doing. We're going to get into that in probably the second hour of the program or the second portion of the program. But first, we want to talk to our guest about her work dealing with genealogy. Welcome to the program, Sister Antoinette Harrell. Sister Harrell, how are you?
9: Yes, hi, Brother Elliot. I want to thank you and the other brother for having me as a guest on your show tonight. Thank uh, uh, you once again.
8: Brother Richard is with us.
9: <laughs> hi, Brother Richard.
8: Hi, how you doing, Sister? It's a pleasure.
9: All mine.
4: Sister Harrell, you know, before we get started, I... um share with Brother Richard some of your work and uh, and some of the other things that we want to talk about some of the, well all of it is important but uh, uh, some of your most recent work I want to kind of uh, use in the, the back end of our conversation first I want to talk about genealogy and uh, the tracing and studying of our family roots you know <clears throat> when the show Roots came on in the late 70s it kind of started a resurgence among black people to trace their family tree. Uh, Some families are already conscious about their roots and uh, being close with their families. Black families were always close. But uh, sometimes through movements, through the Great Migration and others' family some families had gotten distant and you lose contact with members. But I noticed after the uh, roots uh, program, that it was a resurgence of family reunions and things of that nature. Uh, Sister Aurel, tell our listening audience how you got involved with becoming a researcher and a genealogist.
9: Well, I was blessed to have my mother as the uh, oral history keeper, the family griot, to share through oral history everything that she knew. Of course, she didn't write it down, but... Every time I talked with my mom, she would share the same stories over and over and over again. And I guess the ancestors was leaving her to tell me. And one day I said, you know, instead of sort of getting a little upset that she keep talking about the same thing, you better start writing it down. And from that day forward, I took a very, very deep interest in the things that my mother was telling me to take it to another level, which means now research in any written document in the courthouse, in the library, anywhere I can find any information to basically solidify what my mom had told me. And at that time, self-discovery began. I knew a little bit, Mm
10: -hmm.
9: but it wasn't until I started to research deeper that I learned about my ancestors' what they went through, where they lived, who owned them, what did freedom mean to them. That's when self-discovery became very important to me. And I want to share that gift with anyone in the family that wanted to receive it and also help others to research their family history. Not only to research it, but to document it, to record it, because no one is going to research and document your family history. It's your journey. You want to take that journey. You don't want to pay someone else because it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel the same. It doesn't mean the same because there's a healing, there's crying, there's questions, there is a connection. And if someone else made that connection and say, here it is, it's not the same. You need to know. You need to go back. You need to do it for yourself and for your ancestors and for those that is here with you and those that is yet unborn but on their way.
4: Sister so Rell, you, you go all over the country um, helping organizations, and I assume this genealogical, genealogical organizations because there's several of them here. In fact, I was a part of one here in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania uh, for a while. Um, helping them and giving people uh, roadmap so to speak, or, or uh, notebooks, or, or or guides on how to trace their family tree. Um, I shared with you in a brief conversation uh, off air about my journey, um, and I, I hope I'm not. Uh, uh, I, I I I would assume I'm the average person, and I'll I'll give you a little bit of background, and then you can kind of guide me to where I should go. And, uh, and, and tell me what I'm doing wrong. My folks are from Virginia. My father's people, my mother's people. And then, and that's a whole nother story. Cause I know that's a whole new set of research. I'll give you a little brief on my mother's uh, people. And you can kind of guide me there. Uh, my mother, uh, my grandmother, which I never knew. Cause she, she passed before I was born, um, my mother was aware of her mother, which was her her grandmother. She told me that she came from St. Thomas, but she didn't have any proof of it. Uh, she just had heard that she came from St. Thomas. Well, before my mother passed in 06, I did a little research on her family, which she really knew nothing about beside her mother and her mother's brothers. Uh, and she was right. Because in 1921 uh, my great grandmother came from St. Thomas. She came with two white folks. She was sponsored to come here. I assume that any black that, that came through Ellis Island, because she did come through Ellis Island, was sponsored by a white person. Uh, she was their domestic. So when they came here, they brought her. and. So my mother was right. The oral history that she heard about her grandmother was right. Um, And I showed her that before she died, and I could see the look on her face was kind of like an affirmation. And I was happy to be able to do that for her before she passed. But her research kind of stopped there. Uh, I would like to continue that, but um, it might be difficult because she was from another country, from St. Thomas. So I put her research on hold, and I went to my father's people. Now, my father's people are from Virginia. Um, they came up here in the late 30s. Uh, eight of them, uh, six of my bro- uh, his brothers and two sisters. One stayed down south. It was nine altogether. They came here, but uh, my grandfather, which was my dad's father, did not come. And he never came. Uh, So my father knew about his dad because when he left from down there, my father was 12. He knew about his dad, but he didn't really know much or didn't tell me much. In fact, none of his brothers and sisters told me much about his father. So I kind of had to do research on my own. I found out that my grandfather was married in 1915 to my grandmother, uh, which I knew before she passed in 68 uh they got married in 1915 and i seen the name that was on the marriage certificate of his mother and father and the county that they were born in i did a little trace back to the 1890 census and saw that his father filled out the 1890 census with at the time my great grandmother and my grandfather was a younger man at that time and he had two sisters and a brother and he listed his age in 1890 as 45. Now I knew that past 1860 it's difficult, especially down South to find any census records of of blacks up North. It might be different. And I want to ask you about that when we talk more, but I knew that, it was going to be difficult then. My work was cut out because my great grandfather listed that he was from Charlotte County, Virginia. So I did do a cursory research of white folks that lived in Charlotte County because generally when blacks left the plantation, they took the surname of the people that they were with. And I'll confirm that in our later conversation with you. So I went to whites that lived in Charlotte County and I. Or property records and names listed so tell me am i on the right track of what i'm doing
9: yeah you're on the right track um and i gather that most of your research has been done utilizing the um census yes as well as ancestry what you can find on family search or ancestry but you must go to the county where your ancestors and your family members lived. And you must look in the records such as secessions, probates, and wills. As African descendants of our enslaved ancestors, we must research not only our family history, but we have to research the people who owned us or the last owners. And sometimes you have to research two owners, and some people may have to research three owners, depending on who they left behind, who was sold, and and, and where they were sold and who they were willed off or of, uh, deeded off to. So prior to 1870, 1870 in the United States Census, was the very first time that African people was listed by name. Okay. Prior to that, they was listed by the gender, the gender, the, gender, the age, and listed uh, as a number in a household to the, to the plantation owner who owned them. So for the most part, 90% of us, unless it was free people of color, may not find our ancestors by name in the united states census but that does not mean that you would not find them in the business affairs of the people who owned them if they rented them out hired them out for a job if they sold them because they was chattel property or if they took out insurance policy on them if that person who owned your family was a wealthy owner then you would want to look in their business affairs if you can find them, those things that was in the court, but also at some of the local universities where some families have donated their family records to some universities, you may find them. But it's not always the case because some people still hold their family records in the family. But what was recorded in the courthouse you will be able to find them unless the courthouse burned down. And that's always something that we hope that didn't happen because the records was uh, could have been destroyed by the fire. And in some cases, some courts courthouses, they only can go back so far because they have moved the records to some annexed places or in the attics, uh, and you may never find them. And with this new um, person in charge, uh, I don't I, – I'm skeptical about records because I know right now in the deep south, in Louisiana, in the Louisiana State Archives, it's not easy to research records there because the people are not helpful. They're not very helpful, you, you know, with – going inside the vaults and going inside the attics. They don't tell you what's there. And if
4: so, they tell you they can't find it. Sister real, let me ask uh, two questions. Now, <clears throat> we did have a segment of blacks that were free. Uh, Philadelphia, for example, is an old city. It used to be the nation's first capital. And blacks have lived in Philadelphia since this, almost since white folks have lived there. So, free blacks in certain areas were they listed in the census, or blacks period didn't get listed in the census until eighteen seventy. Well,
9: free free blacks was listed in the census by name.
4: Okay, so if, if they you if, know, and
9: I heard mm-hmm, by name, and I heard you say the eighteen ninety, at least you was able to find your ancestors in the eighteen ninety census because that was the census that burned, and so there was a little. It wasn't very much information that was able to be saved from that census. So you was, can consider yourself one of the fortunate people that uh, was able to get some information from the 1890 census. That 1890 census was a very important census. It really, really, um, w- we'll never know just how much that 1890 census revealed because wait, it, it was destroyed.
4: Wait a minute. So you're saying that the records that I found is is, is exceptional or rare?
9: yeah the records that you find you're very, you're very blessed and fortunate there because 1890 census burned and it oh. they, they was not uh able to save a lot of information that was millions of people that was not uh cannot utilize the 18 census so you that's why you have 1870 1880 um you don't have 1890 then it skips to 1900 1910, 1920,
4: 1930, 1940. Yeah, well, do, do, the the last records I do have of my great grandfather was that eighteen ninety census. So wow, I can consider myself fortunate.
9: You you can re- you can really consider yourself fortunate to have that that portion of the census in eighteen ninety because not that many people. And as long as I have been researching family history and listening to other genealogists and family historians. Uh, we
4: all face the same brick wall, that census was destroyed. Sister, Earl, now the <clears throat> the my granddad my great grandfather said in that that census of eighteen ninety that he was from Charlotte County, Virginia. Uh he didn't mention a city. So I went to Charlotte County Records and I found that it was three uh my last name is Booker. It was three Booker families that lived in that county that were white. I think one one owned like ten of our ancestors and the uh, the other one I forgot how many he owned It was a little bit more then one owned like twenty five I don't know whether they that those whites were related. They did have the same surname and now. The one that owned 10 had them listed by number. They didn't have a name. But well, one of them just had names there. And my uh, great-grandfather's name was Jack. Now, two of them had a Jack listed under their property records. So, you know, that's why I kind of hit a brick wall there because I didn't know which way to go. But from what you're saying, I'm have to take a trip to Charlotte County.
9: And and once again, now, this is something very rare, and, and I'm, you know, hearing you speak about the records, you know, on the East Coast versus what they have in the South. Okay. At least those two Jacks was mentioned in the history of those two, those three Booker families, those, the white families. Okay. Where somewhere along the line, your family was owned uh, by one of those Bookers. Yes. And because it's two Jacks, but... If you re- look in some of the, the. and okay, are we talking about two Jacks? Or are we talking about one Jack that happened to be owned by both, by, you know, two different people? And, Did this person okay. sell them to Jack? You, you know what I'm saying? Okay. Uh, because sometimes the your ancestors could have been sold to a brother in the family. Okay. You know, So I would really look at that, but at least you know that Jack was owned by the Bookers. And at this point here, and I don't know what year you're talking about, do you know the year that you're speaking about right now?
4: Yeah, because I went back to the, when he listed that he was uh, 45 years old in 1890, I kind of estimated that he might have been born between 1845 and you know, I, I, I what I did. I went back to the 1850 census, and or 18, what the, slave,
9: the slave the slave schedule.
4: Yes, yes, mm-hmm. and saw his name, or saw a Jack listed twice on the property records of a Booker, of the the white Bookers that lived in Charlotte County.
9: Okay, so it could be that you are at the door to look in the secession. Are probates or wills in the courthouse of the bookers, the booker family. A second thing, the second thing I would like to, but you're, advise talking, about the, you
4: to you're take, talking about what the white bookers,
9: the white bookers, yes, okay. the white bookers, because you may want to look at how did they get Jack, okay, did they purchase Jack, if so, where did they purchase Jack from. Now,
4: would that so be listed? It, Those things would be listed.
9: Sometimes, sometimes, not all the time, but it has been known that some people will document that because, once again, you want to look at, go to the library. You, You need to go to the genealogy library in the town or the city where your family came from. Okay. And you want to look at the first founding families of that particular area. And if the bookers are part of that, part of the families that helped to, what they would say pioneering families that helped to build that town, then they may be mentioned in some of the history books, the family history books in the genealogy department at the library. Okay. And if so, if so, if the, if there was prominent people in that community, then I would look at it, especially if there was prominent people, you may want to go to what university is in that area and go to the index, the history um, department of the university, look online and see if there's an index that would that would list Booker, whatever the first name and the surname. And if there's a collection in Booker's name, if there's any collection in his name, well, then he his family could have donated the family records and papers to uh, a university, to the history department. So you don't know until you look at if if the Bookers was a prominent family. If they was into politics, they was business people, you may find more on them than you would the average person that owned 10 people.
4: Okay, all right. Well, I I I know that my work is kind of cut out for me because I want to be able to trace my family back to the continent, and I know it's possible, but uh, it's going to take some work. And uh, you know, yeah. that's what I found from just my little cursory research that that uh, genealogy is not just a hobby; it's it's a it's a it, it's a desire. It's a it's a. I mean, you got to have it in you to really kind of want to know who your people are it's 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 really a i I wouldn't say a life's mission for you it's a life's mission but it's it's really i I can't words can't really describe it but it's really something that because when i started seeing names there and especially when i started looking at some of those property records and seeing our ancestors listed along with uh pigs and chickens and uh, they paid five hundred dollars paid eight hundred dollars i mean that. You know, it really tugs at you, and it goes straight to the issue of reparations.
9: Yeah, because it was chattel property. I mean, it wasn't like they had a separate list listing all the people who they owned. They was right there with the pigs, the beds, the spoons, the forks. I mean, they counted every spoon down to, you know, one thing I can tell you, those people took care of business better than what we do today, you know. So so your ancestors, if somebody would go in and say, Okay, I'm looking for my, my my ancestors on a separate uh inventory list, you're not gonna find it. The inventory is your ancestors was part of that inventory. Your ancestors was part of that chattel property. So they would not be listed and that's for anybody that's listing, do not look for them on any separate sheet of paper. You have to look for them with the hogs, the pigs, the the barrels of cotton, the barrels of coin, whatever it is that they had, your ancestors was listed right there with them.
4: Uh, Sister Rell, you you've helped a lot of uh, groups around the country uh, to do genealogical research. Um, do you find it is easy, easier in certain states than others? Uh, that certain states get better records, uh, or yes, okay, go yes. ahead,
9: yes certain states and certain counties and parishes, because it depends on the county and where I live is a parish. It depends on the leadership, the clerk of court. All of that is very important um, when you're researching your family history. But one thing I do want to point out, yes, it started out as a hobby, but like anybody else, you know, we thought it was a hobby, but it's not a hobby because our ancestors were sold. One of the first things that many of our ancestors did up on emancipation, they start looking for their family members. Okay. Husbands was looking for their wives. Mothers was looking for their their children. Some children walk for miles, and they tell you in some of the narratives that we heard, um, the slave narratives uh, that was created by the WPA, the first thing that most people did, they started looking for their family members, looking for their children. And when we think about it, as a mother or anyone that's listed as a parent, the heartache they went through knowing that their family member was sold. But in some cases, some of them knew what plantation they were sold to.
4: Okay.
9: They knew. So they start to walk in those areas to see if they can find their children, find their wives, their husbands, their mothers, their fathers. Then you start to find that it's not a hobby because there's some pain that's associated with it. And that pain is you going back. You're basically reliving the past. You are your ancestors. You are the future. And for some of us that may not want to know, there's a disconnect right there. It doesn't matter to them because they feel like that that happened a long time ago. But there's one, one um, slogan that I like. It's the past that shapes the present. And the present that shapes the future we 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 must know where we're coming from and better to to understand where we're going why because in doing our family research we will find the land that our family members owned we want to know what happened to it we will find the patterns that some of our ancestors uh patent things. It's so much that goes with that. Okay. It's not just looking for names of people. We're going to find lynchings. We may find rapes in the family. We may find incest in the family. We'll find a lot of things. And so that's why a lot of the people who came before us did not want to talk about it. See, my mother was, just one of the people out of hundreds of people in my family, but my mother was the only one that would ever talk about family
4: history. Okay.
9: And family history only becomes important to the children as it is. It's only as important as the generation before them make it to be. If your children or grandkids and nieces and nephews come over to the house for dinner or family gatherings, and no one talk about the family history, they're not going to pass it down to their their children because they don't know. So the time of coming together just to eat food and laugh and sit around and watch TV, but we don't talk about our family history. We don't talk about that one that survived that auction block or those cotton fields because some kind of way, we we just disconnect ourselves. Now, what I heard a lot of the elderly people say that came through Jim Crow, that came through World War II. They talked about the hardship and the abuse that they had to go through. So many of them want to spare us of the pain. But if you look around, it never left. Lynchings never stopped. Police brutality never stopped. You see, all that never, it just changed the name. Okay. And so we're doing our family an injustice by not knowing. To, One of go- the slave narratives I want to share with you right quick. Well,
4: do me favor, was a favor. sister? Sister mm-hmm. Real, do me a favor. We're going to take a brief break, and when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation. I want to get Brother Richard okay. involved, and we'll get the callers involved at 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. Join the conversation with family genealogist Sister Antoinette Harrell. We'll be right back.
7: Five eight eight five two four four four. That number is 215 885 All Insurance Incorporated
0: This is Professor Griff of Public Enemy. People keep
1: saying black people need to do this and black people need to do that. Well, frankly speaking, I think it's a whole lot of talk, a whole lot of philosophy, and a whole lot of head nodding. But where is the action? I'm suggesting everyone that's within the sound of my voice, we need to get on board with this National Black Economic Empowerment Movement. Let's Buy Black. 365.com. That's Let's Buy Black, 365.com. This is Professor Griffin, from Public Enemy, and I'm out. Peace. History is a clock that people
5: use to tell their political and cultural time of day. It is also a compass that people use to find themselves on the map of human geography history tells of people where they have been and what they have been where they are and what they are most important history tells a people where they still must go what they still must be the relationship of history to the people is the same as the relationship of a mother to her child
10: Wake up,
2: everybody No more sleeping in bed No more back thinking Time for thinking ahead The world has changed so very much from what it used to be There's so much hatred. Oh, 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 oh. Wake up, all oh, the teachers have got to teach a new way. Maybe then they'll listen to what you have to say. They're the ones who's coming up, and the world is in their hands. When you teach the children, you jump the very best care. can. Make the they so the
4: Welcome back to time for an Awakening. We're joining the conversation this evening with our special guest, author, community activist, and genealogist. Sister Antoinette Harrell is with us this evening talk about tracing our family history and some of the other work that she has been involved in let's go back to our guest Sister Harel and Brother Richard
8: Yes uh, Sister Harrell, Um, you know you and Elliot has really just uh, continued to just show the power of oral oral history as far as and, and what we're doing but I do want you to you were before um um, Brother Ellie went to commercial. You were going to bring up something from, I believe that was a slave narrative that you wanted to emphasize. Yeah,
9: yeah. I, I want to bring up this because this is very important. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a slave narrative of a woman in Texas. She had, you know, after after slavery, um, she had married. And while grooming her husband's hair, I guess you know doing what she was doing his hair, she asked him what? How did he get that scar in his head? And he responded by saying, "The mammy hit me in the head," in in that voice. And she passed out. And she passed out because she knew that accident, because that was her son, that Mm. she had accidentally hit him in the head with an eye and something. Well, anyway, she passed out because the person who she was married to was her son. And I couldn't imagine what she was going through when she did come through and realize that the person who she had been intimate with was her own child. Now, when I thought about the slave narrative, I said
4: and she, she had and, to and be and she very wrote, young. She wrote this in her narrative, uh, Sister Real.
9: Yeah, this was in this was you know how they went around you know, yes. United States, mm-hmm. you know, talking to those that had just been freed and what was slavery like. Okay. Well, in the narrative. You know, I said, okay, in order for her to have a son and come back and marry him, she had to be pretty young herself. And so it was uncommon. It wasn't, you know, girls got it, got married at, you know, had babies at 13. And so to come back and, and now the young man, the child is a man. And come back to the same plantation, the same plantation, And it was her son who she had married.
8: That makes it. hmm? No, go go ahead, excuse me.
9: You know, and that goes to show you the pain that our ancestors went through and why some people don't want to talk about genealogy because brothers was made to mate with their sisters for entertainment you know uh, fathers with their daughters and no one wants to talk about the stud plantations because one man uh could have fathered 40 kids in one on one plantation you, you see and and people our ancestors tried to work hard not to remember that not to recall those things
8: okay it was it, i just got finished um reading a, a book um the American slave Codes where they're trying to make the case about slave breeding and um it's just so interesting in in hearing um brother Elliot's um story um because then- Virginia was one of those uh states um especially after the uh the um Jefferson's um law that stopped the importation of Africans. After it was the 1808, that where money was to be made, and especially amongst the new, the, the middle colonies or Virginia, particularly Virginia was a large one, um, to be able to sell Africans that further down south and to the west. Um, so breeding, and when you mentioned about studs, become that, um, you know, one of those activities that towards that business, of supplying um human um, human beings for that, for 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 their um own not just entertainment but for their own um enterprise so when you mentioned that those um wills and probates and business records are so uh, critical that these white slave owners it it it, it kind of reinforces that um in my mind um of why those types of records when we're doing our genealogy is so important. Mm-hmm.
9: Exactly. And and so when you put your your hand on the key to unlock the past, you don't know what you're unlocking. But in the spirit of Sankofa, it says go back and fix the best that the past has to offer well, in doing that, you have to go through the pain, too. And there is a lot of pain associated with genealogy. And genealogy can bring the family together, and in some cases it can tear the family apart. I had to learn that. Okay. Because sometimes I would go, you know, want to talk to family members, and before I got there, somebody made a phone call, oh, don't listen mm-hmm. to her, she's about to <laughs> a lot of confusion and then somebody you know she's crazy huh if <laughs> i was you i wouldn't talk to her and you know when people start doing that in the family it's because it's something they're trying to cover up okay. but and i had to let the people know in the family look i'm not here to talk about the family dirty secrets you know because every what family is perfect there is no perfect family but those things that needed to be recorded for the children like the land, most family members who who have, uh, is fortunate enough to own property in the family, especially if the family members bought it in 1930, 1920, or the 1800s like some of my relatives did. Well, most of the young people are not just the young people, some of the older people today. The they can't give you the legal description of the land. They can't tell you who purchased the land. They can't tell you where it's located. And that's just
4: too much, too too much ignorance
8: in one place. Okay. You know what, Sister Harrell? One thing, as you were developing, um, you know, and, t- and and sharing with us that process and information that we should be looking for came to me where you started as your, uh, you know, your family member being that oral griot, I mean the natural griot, right? Um, and the importance of storytelling. And that's what um, sparked me as I was listening to you of how that cultural transition of storytelling or telling the story that relates to our history, no matter how much that little bit and you, you were saying, what sparked you was that that part being told over and over until you really picked up on it and took it to that next level. I kind of, um, it just, it, it, it seems that part of that African cultural retention to have someone... And what you're saying in the genealogy process for us being that grill, that that storyteller, and in this case, being able to help us unwind the story of a of that we don't we weren't the narrators of. In 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 general, um, did did you did you did you make that connection yourself as you went through your process of of uncovering your family? Um, genealogy becoming that um, storyteller
9: yeah I did but you know becoming that storyteller you have to first have somebody want to (laughs) listen you know because I was competing with the television I was competing with the latest news with Beyonce you know you competing with all of these other stories and, and at times I would just sit quietly and listen to them oh, Beyonce's daughter, they could name the daughter, they could name the mom, they could name the husband, but they couldn't tell you that great-grandmother's name. Mm. And so I didn't feel very much like the storyteller that my mom had passed down to me. So I started to open up collections and document it. And said, well, okay, well, if my family wouldn't benefit from it, well, maybe some student who's writing a dissertation or papers or thesis on on the area of, of prominent black folks in areas that uh, pioneered through the roughest time, you know. And I started to do that because then I realized that if I didn't do it, it would be forever lost again because no one wanted to hear it. And so maybe 10 years went by. And if I tell you, family members are beginning to open up just a little bit, just a little bit, not mm-hmm. very much now. Not wanting to talk about it, and the younger people you know it's like there is a serious disconnect for them, a serious disconnect for the younger people today because they feel like their their Facebook family is their friends, and that's their family mm. so if you if you have dinner you know and you're trying to bring up a conversation, you first have to say. Please, let's not bring any telephone to the dinner table. Let's leave all of that out of here. Simply because you want to tell them something. I ran into situations in my family where I was trying to hold on to the last 20 acres of land that we have in our family. And the reason being because it belongs to us and because my great-grandmother, Emma Mead Harrell, she bought that land in 1896 when women didn't even have the rights to purchase land. My great-grandmother had to get permission from her husband to buy that land for herself and her heirs because my great-grandfather had another woman with children. And so my grandmother purchased the land, saying, for Emma, Mead, Harrell, and her heirs because of that. So I said, I tracked, I said, now, Who did she know? Who did this woman know that she was dealing with business in law, dealing with the law, and then buying land in her name? That was unheard of in 1896, simply because women didn't have rights. They didn't have rights during that time. Women's suffrage wasn't thought about You know, they was working on it, but there was still a lot of things. Women didn't have any rights. So that, it all became... She became the shoulder that I wanted to stand on because I'm saying, am I like her in many ways? You know, where do I get my patch from? My mom, her dad, and my grandmother. Mm-hmm. And on the other side of the family, my great-grandfather, he lived in El asylum because the KKK uh, used to beat him so much. So there's a lot of wounds that you open up in the family,
4: that people do not want to talk about. Sister Arrell, in your travels, uh, helping different groups and organizations and individuals with uh, uh, blueprints to trace their family history, I, I saw uh, some YouTube videos where your travels took you to the Del- Mississippi Delta area. Um, and I'll preface it by saying this. Uh, We interviewed Charles Cobb, the author uh, that wrote the book, Uh, This Nonviolent Stuff Will Get You Killed. He was one of the first, if not that he was the first, that went down to organize down in the Mississippi Delta area uh, with the uh, Freedom Riders, him and uh, then Stokely Carmichael were the first two. They were Howard graduates, and they went down to the Delta. He said that they stopped in the Delta because they were headed to Texas. But somebody at a meeting in the Delta uh, asked where they were going, and they told him. And he said, uh, well, why are you going to Texas when we need help here? And they stayed there to help organize. And he talked about the challenges of organizing our people in the Delta because of the way that they were, the, the way the situation was in the Delta area, put it that way. Do you notice in your travels and in your help trying to help people uh, look their family history up, did you run into any challenges, any difficulties in the Delta area and what were they?
9: Yeah, when I first went to the Delta, I went thinking, well with a plan to collect the oral history from former coppers or coppers themselves or people who was held in the system of penance and involuntary servitude. And penance means to work off a debt. You're not going to leave until you work that debt off. So he was a peon. Well, when I got to the Delta, I just couldn't believe that I had stepped back at least 70 years. So then the work that Stroke with Carmichael and Nick and and Dr. King uh, Fannie Lou Hamer spoke about Mega Evans. It became so real because I'm in the Delta now, and and I'm looking at this 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 thing. Yeah, it's rich in 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 culture of the blues and, and food, but it hasn't changed. It's the place where Emmett Hill was murdered at.
4: Now, when you say you, you know. step back seventy years, explain what you're saying.
9: I saw Shaney's, I saw sharecroppers' houses. I saw people living in in houses that you would think that would be in a third world country. And it was Bev Smith radio talk show out of Philadelphia that really followed me in the in the Mississippi Delta. They helped to talk about what Dr. King and the rest of the people had seen in the Mississippi Delta. Okay. Uh, in, in some. You know, when you're traveling down the interstate and you get off the interstate and you're going down these lonely dirt roads and you know you're coming across these chef crop or I've seen them I've seen them in documentaries. I read about them, but to actually lay my eye on the row of houses, one bedroom shotgun houses with tin roofs, uh The pig, the hog pen, a pig pen almost 10 feet from the back door, and people living in the middle of the cotton field or soybeans. I couldn't believe that. And I saw situations that people just could not get themselves out of because they was in the middle of nowhere. They lived 45 miles from the nearest grocery store or supermarket. 40 miles from the nearest hospital, a medical clinic, towns that did not have a medical clinic, towns without a library. I thought about me in this day and time. What would I have done? I probably would have stuck my thumb out and tried to hitchhike one way or the other.
4: So in order to get to... in order to get some of our ancestors to to talk to you or to maybe to give you information or to cooperate, did you have to? I, I know you had to gain their trust because the, uh, Charles Cobb mentioned he had to gain their trust and he stayed there oh, for yeah, a while.
9: their trust, I mean, I I couldn't. Let me tell you, I, I I didn't even talk genealogy at that particular time. Okay, I went in there to talk sharecropping about sharecropping, but the need of what was needed, coats was needed. Food was needed. A pair of socks was needed. Okay. There's no way I could go in and ask people to tell me about the cotton fields when they need a coat. Okay. I'm talking about people look like me. I'm talking about, you know, come on, you know, Antoinette, this is people look like you. You know, you're looking at a kid who's living in a house and the child is cold. No, I put that down. And I had to pick up you know what I gotta go back and- c- collect some coats I gotta go back and collect some blankets and some socks or, and tell somebody about the atrocities and the pain and 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 the impoverished conditions that they are living in in this present day
8: okay one well, one thing that uh, i and looking at the uh, one of the video clips that you and and as you were interviewing and and coming across the compassion that you that you demonstrated um and, and just the short clips was the home that i guess it was soot because um from the the stove and being closed in that the whole house was black because of the soot because it was really no ventilation Even yes
9: that was it, that was a shady. that was a chef of shiny i was in mm-hmm. And that's in the hometown of Emmett Till's mother. That's where it all started out. And when I, when a lady said, no, you want to see something? Come see where I live at. Hmm. So the lady took me in her home and I couldn't do anything but look around because the whole, the ceiling was black. The walls was black. It was hot and they was cooking with butane and, and the films of that was, you know, the smoke was just smoke up the whole house. And I couldn't believe they had to pay rent, $135 to live there.
8: And it's these kind of stories also that don't get to us to maybe help shape as you were speaking about earlier. Um, you know, you were making a reference in relationship to communicating with your family and believe, I think all of us may have who try to do that um have that challenge but then just this kind of um the delta area Mississippi particularly cuz um Fannie Lou Hamer came out of um out of Mississippi um and,
10: she did you know,
8: mm-hmm. and and that we don't really get that in this moment even now that type of living condition exists amongst um African Americans um particularly and when we talk when they're talking about Poverty, that image don't even come to the mind. They 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 make it like it's an urban thing more than a, a, a southern thing or rural thing, and then the connection yeah. of how poverty is dealt with.
9: Yeah, well, it was Doctor the late Doctor Ryan Walters who was my mentor. Uh, he came down here and and with me, and I took him to the Mississippi Delta, and and one of the things that um, he had been to the Delta but he hadn't been in the places I had taken him. And for the most part, the media is not going to tell you that. And the people who are in in those areas, they don't have connections outside of, outside of those areas. <clears throat> for the most part, many of them may not even have access to the Internet. Mm. Let alone, the, you know, knowing somebody on the east coast and so it's a hard life in the mississippi delta and when i first um went to the delta it i i never i couldn't even get on the highway and drive back to louisiana without crying because i couldn't believe what i was seeing and by no i am not A wealthy woman by no means. But compared to where I was coming from, I had a roof over my head that wasn't leaking from the rain. I had a floor, but I wouldn't have to worry about falling through the cracks of the floor. Or having plastic up to the windows to keep the wind out. Or sweating during the night because it's so hot and the mosquitoes are tearing you up don't have a job the nearest job may be 60 miles away and you look up at you look at the people's faces and just living in despair oh my goodness how do that today's animals have better houses than people than some people in the mississippi delta
8: and it was one of those clips also and, and this goes to with all that uh, as we uh, see it, um, you 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 interviewed uh, a young man who I believe lost his job, um, mm-hmm. and the house was connected to the job, and because he he wasn't working no more, he had no place to stay. And that scene, but no the place. the thing that struck me was that how important, because I think it was around Christmas time, how important it was to try to get something for Christmas for his child for his child and obviously how important family was or is for him, even though that kind of condition existed.
9: Yeah, he was staying on a plantation and in order to stay in those houses that he was living in, or anyone that was on that was living in those houses, you had to work on the plantation and if you was put off the plantation you was put out the house and that was that was a you know and i remember when he gave me the directions to the house or to the area you would pass by these apartments and you would think that it was just some nice apartment well it was like one of the people said in the mississippi delta He said, don't judge it by the structure of the building. The building means absolutely nothing. It is the condition and the system that is created that makes it a plantation. Stop looking for the big house with the Mm -hmm. shanies in the back and the oak trees with the moss hanging down. That ain't it. So he sent me down the road. Now, if I was looking with that eye, that looking for what I just described to you, I would have passed it up. But instead, what I saw, the average little apartment complex that looked like an apartment complex. But when I went in there, I had some box of clothing in my car. And I wrote in there because always I have to be very cautious how I move around in in the Mississippi Delta. And I asked the lady, I said, I'm looking for a plantation to give out a box. She said, this is it. And I never said a word. I just gave the box and just looked at the surroundings and said, okay. So you see, what makes a plantation a plantation? Mm. The prisons is a plantation, right? It's a plantation, but we we were trained and taught to look for one thing, and we had tunnel vision, and because we had tunnel vision, and we had allowed it to paint a picture in our minds what a plantation supposed to look like.
4: So we was missing out on the
9: modern
4: day plantation, Sister Rell. That's what I found, mm-hmm. Sister Sorrell, The um, a couple of years ago, it was a documentary made that they showed on public television called "Slavery by Another Name." Um, understand from your work uh, and your interviews with Ted Koppel and Time Magazine, it led to documentaries such as the one I'm talking about being made.
3: Mm-hmm.
10: Talk
4: about the interviews with Ted Koppel and time magazine when uh, it came to light and uh, some media act like they didn't know that some of our people were still held in slavery in quote unquote modern time. And when I say modern times, I'm talking about not too long ago. Talk about your work and, and bringing these things to light and the media uh, uh, getting involved?
9: Yeah, I I met a woman, well, first of all, I met quite a few people who was on plantations and had been, had just got off plantation, but they was afraid for their lives, and they couldn't tell nobody. They, did, they asked me not to tell nobody. But, but I did listen to them, but I understood why they said, you can't tell nobody because, see, Ms. real we still live here. And 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 we still work for some of those people who are still in charge. We work for their children now. They are the politicians, and they're the sheriffs in town, and they're the employees. And 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 I can't be without a job. And I and and I don't want to come up missing somewhere. Well, I met a woman named May Louise uh, Wall Miller, and she she said it's okay to tell them. I don't care. I'm not afraid. That's why I call it the modern-day Harriet Tubman, she's deceased now. She said, go tell them. But she said, but better than that, come talk to my daddy. My father's still living. My father, he's 107 right now. And so when I I was a part of the reparation case in Chicago, um, I, I I told the attorneys and the people who were representing us in court, I said, look, I got a family who just got the plantation in 1963. People say, say it again. I said 1963, not 1863. So then the attorneys called somebody, and then Ted Koppel and CNN and ABC and People Magazine, and everybody else started looking for this type of story. But did they know? They knew because the records was already in the National Archives. Unless somebody was looking. If you wasn't looking, of course, you may not know. But we do know that sharecropping, the, the system called sharecropping, was nothing but slavery. They knew. They had heard of sharecropping. Define as you will. But that's all it is. If a man or a woman had to steal away through the night and find, you know, refugees, be, become refugees and homeless because they were beat and murdered and some of them had to. Big their own graves and were shot and in, 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 in because they tried to steal away from those plantations. So then the interviews started to come. But, but let me say this I was equally more disappointed with the black university and the black institution, the black media, because the black media, when they had some power to tell the story, they never told the story. Mm. They never told the story. But if they would have told the story and heard the story, what they faced in the day wouldn't have been a surprise to them. Because in the South, there's a slogan saying the South shall rise again. Mm. This battle that is going on right now has always been about the unfinished business of the Civil War. <laughs> Abraham Lincoln said, I'll free your sla- I'm a free slaves if you try to secede from this union. And every day, every day, the Confederates always thought about how could we get back on top again. But if we would have known the story of the Pro, if we would have known the story, and then with us, we can know, But oh, we was too busy being entertained. We was busy. See, we was busy by being entertained by the music and the dance and, you know, the nice-looking women and nice-looking men and what you drive, and you know, what you're wearing in the community. But now look at this time right now. I'm not surprised. Why am I not surprised? Because I heard the voices of the sharecroppers. When I went into the Department of Justice Files in Washington, D.C., I heard their voices saying, tell somebody. And even
8: if nobody don't wanna listen, you gotta keep talking. Keep talking. And as you know, uh sister Harrell you know, the thing and I I, I c ca- I wanna uh commend you for your work because uh, as Elliot said, I'm a, uh I'm a tour guide you know, and it's a volunteer thing at the uh African American historical um um museum. And also I do it for um Eden Cemetery, which is uh, one oh, Uh, cemetery that was created by African-Americans in in 1903, um, which is an internment of Africans that go back to 1840. But, you know, it's, you know, because when you, you know, this point of being a storyteller, and I think it's important only because if you didn't exist, you started out doing for your family. And now you are the, you know, you are the repository, the oral repository for people and 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 that is so powerful and important, and I don't think that um the listening audience should um, misunderstand that um because of the the challenges that you speak of of how the entertainment distractions exist to stop people from listening to the natural history tellers mm-hmm.
10: Mm-hmm. you know what i mean mm-hmm.
8: it's it's so important and you know that 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 exists so I just um you know you speaking to that and how you're able to show that in even that this is this is a part of an old old project on Mm -hmm. both sides trying to be be free and on the other side trying to make slaves that's right Hmm. you know it's 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 important and and you're Starting and that's all of us was if we were starting from our family doing that genealogical work, that's right. Then we that's would right. be able to add to the narrative that's that would make reparations not a a floundering issue. But I like to hear how did that uh, how did that when you were able to present that in that court case um for the report, how did that turn?
9: Well, I, I, I'm glad you asked that question, uh, Brother Richard. That's the next thing I want to respond to. You see, I refuse to let someone tell me after they done sold my family and separated my family, now i got to go get a degree. Mm. See, I wouldn't buy into that. Now you're going to tell me that the only reason I can become a certified genealogist is i got to go and get a degree? It ain't happening so I won't be sitting at your table. So when we got in the court, and I remember sitting before the three judges, one of them said, after the sister had recused herself from the bench, one of the judges said, how are you all connecting the dots? So the attorney for the team was said, we have a genealogist on board. And the judge said, well, that explains and although I kept trying to tell some of the attorneys and some of the other people, look, you've got to connect the dots. You can't go into court saying, just rambling off. You've got to be able to show where your family was, who owned them, how much did they sell them for, how much did they hire them out for, how much taxes was paid, how many bales of cotton did they pick. That was very important. Why? Because they knew that if you come into the courts with a paper trail, not just saying I'm just, one, I'm just one of the 35 million Africans that was kidnapped from Africa and sold into America, that wasn't good enough. Wasn't going to hold up. And so at that particular time when the case was dismissed without prejudice, it gave the door to come back but of course it takes a lot of money to go in court but people didn't want to hear about Genie Allen oh no no, that don't make sense yeah it doesn't make sense well go look into some of those financial records of the slaveholders and see how much they made off your ancestors
4: yeah it made a lot of sense to them
9: <laughs> it made a lot of sense <laughs> you understand so if it didn't make sense then why did they record it so if you want your dollars to make sense and your argument to make sense you can go in there and say. They held them for ten years. They worked them till they made this because they kept records of all that. Old Sally, she can pick more cotton than anybody else on this modest plantation. Sally can pick old Sally, she can pick 400 pounds a day. And we expect everybody else to pick up. And 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 go with old Sally would we'll do what she does. Let's Those gra- are the kind of
4: records i Let's grab and call six zero two area code. What's your name? Where you calling from?
11: Uh, brother, this is Brother Devon and Brother Marcus from Memphis, Tennessee.
4: How are you, Marcus?
11: I'm doing great. And I'm enjoying the program with the sister. You know, you know, one thing the sister did say though about the pain that they feel as a as a people. And, and 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 you see the pain is part of the healing process though. You see our people don't wanna go back through that pain. They wanna don't wanna don't don't wanna uh, experience the pain, but in order for us to heal <laughs> we're gonna have to go and bear that pain because that's a part of the healing process. You know, I remember when I was growing up in Jamaica my uh mother you know she would uh, uh she would whisper to me she, you know once black people once ruled the world you know and no one was around you know but she would whisper you know these stuff and 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 it's the same experience you know when she spoke about how that that that, that scottish man raped our great grandmother she would cry you know and you know so it 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 brings back a lot of pain but if we're going to heal we are going to have to experience that pain because we haven't really mourned as a people for the experience. We haven't really, you know, uh, you know, cried, and in, you know uh, that is a part you know that we have to experience if we're gonna heal. And and and, and I appreciate the, this work and 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 I keep on keeping on, sister. Thank you very much. Well, thank much.
4: you, Marcus. Thank you for your call. You're welcome. we brother. Take care. Take yeah.
8: care.
4: Sister Earl, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, some of the other work that you're doing now uh, that the people need to know about, the Dozier Reform School for Black Boys. We're going to talk about that, and we're going to take a brief break. But you can get involved, too, in the conversation by dialing oh. 215-490-9832. That's 215 490 Three, two, time for awakening with activist, author, genealogist, Sister Antoinette Harell. We'll be right back. <laughs>
6: Tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com.
4: What is in one million brothers and sisters who are tired of the same old rhetoric, the same old leaders, the same old ways of dealing with political and economic empowerment? you realize that nobody's going to save black people but us... If you understand that no existing political party prioritizes the best interests of African Americans as a collective, if you believe that leadership is as leadership does, and this means that the best leaders for the black collective must come from the ranks of those who place and hold the best interests of black people foremost and uttermost, if you understand that black people must develop the mindset and the will to finance their own racial uplift organizational efforts, and get involved with one million conscious black voters and contributors. The movement is now. Go to www.iamoneofthemillion.com. That's win one the
9: Hey, did y'all see the stuff I posted on my wall?
3: Nah, it didn't even show up in my news feed. Man, I'm
11: done with social media. All the injustice and brutality going around, and it's like they're trying to suppress our voice. We're trying to get the message out there, and you can't even share empowerment and what's going on around the country either.
7: No, nah, don't be dumb with social media, though. It's a tool, and there is a place where we have a voice. It's a Let's Buy Black 365 social network. You do anything you would on any other social network post pictures, videos, status updates, share resources, and community news. But on Let's Buy Black 365, it's a platform for us and by us to tell our messages.
3: Whoa, that's like a digital underground railroad.
7: What's the name of that site again? It's Let's Buy Black365.com.
12: Yeah, I heard about that. It's all about networking, and you get points, right?
7: Yeah, the more you network, Network, post and share the more points you get. Plus, you get points for posting pictures, sharing information, attending community events, and inviting others to network with you on the app.
3: Wow, that's all I need to know. I'm gonna go download that app right now.
7: Now, better yet, let me invite you so I can get some points. It's all about empowerment and solutions, y'all.
3: Yeah, that's what's up. I'm all in.
7: Let's do it.
11: Let's share our stories. Let's buy Black, Black 365. 365.
7: .com.
12: I say, live it
4: Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. We're joining conversation this evening with Arthur, activist, genealogist, Sister Antoinette Harrell, sharing her 20 years of genealogical experiences with us and, and her work tracing our family's history from the plantations and beyond. And you can join this conversation, too, at 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. Sister Antoinette? Yes? Your work dealing with the Dozier Reform School for Boys, you know, your genealogical work has taken you into a lot of areas. This is one of the areas that you were led to. Talk about, because that's a story, and, and you, you talked earlier about black media. See, we don't expect white media to tell our stories. But we do expect black people and black media to tell our stories. I don't want to hear, the like you said, I don't want to hear the foolishness about Beyonce, Steve Harvey, or any other foolishness going on. I want to hear real stories that affect our people. This story of the Dozier School for Boys uh, is not a popular story that a lot of people have heard about. Now, they did, uh, they uncovered atrocities that had went on there, but just as you told me in private conversations, they uncovered the atrocities that were done to white boys. You were telling the story of black boys. Talk about the Dozier Reform School for Boys.
9: Yes, the Dozier Reform School for Boys was located in Tallahassee, Florida, Um. The, the, yeah, it's located in Tallahassee, Florida. One of the things that got my attention, because I'm always looking for stories on pinnage, and I came across the word in one of the booklets that was published on the atrocities, and the beatings and the lynchings and rapes that did, that took place on the campus. So I called the author of a book, uh, that was written by Roger, um, a guy named Roger, I forgot Roger's last name. But he said, well, look, nobody's covering the story of the black guy. Let me put you in contact with somebody. Well, he did, and at that particular time, I, I used to host a show, a blog radio talk show, and a pastor named Johnny Gaddy called. And he started telling me, he said, Miss Orell, I was at Doza." And he was beat. He was raped as a little boy. But he also witnessed the children being fed to pigs. And he talked about working in the swamp water. Now, we're not talking about grown men cutting trees down. We're talking about an 11-year-old boy. So I made a, a trip down to Florida. And when I went to Florida, I uh, took some of the black men back to, to that area for the very first time. It was the first time they had went back in 50 years. And they started telling me about the beatings. The White House, with the White House men. The White House was a building where they beat the children at. But the campus was separated whites was on one side and blacks was on the other side. Mm-hmm. Black guys, did, the black boys didn't know what was going on the white side and the white side didn't know what was going on the black side. But the white boys did, you know, they had the opportunity to become electricians and farmers. The black boys had to work in the fields, cutting trees down, milking cows, slaughtering the pigs and planting agriculture. So I really wanted to follow the money trail. So I started looking in the files in Tallahassee County and I started to look at, at the state archives all the money that was leaving out there quarterly from children. Children was raising this food. Children was growing the produce. Children was tending to the livestock. Black children. So black yeah, black children okay. were tending to these. So here it is, they was picking these, these babies up for something like playing hooking from school or smoking cigarettes. They would put them in his place without even going before a judge like they did Pastor Gaddy, and I know that you're gonna have Pastor Gaddy on your show very soon. Well, anyway, Pastor Gaddy went deep inside himself to tell me what happened to him. In, in in the buildings called George Washington Carver Building, all the Jackie Robinson Building, so they gave all of these colleges these black names, and they had the worst atrocities. These children were fed to the alligators, They snake bites, and I really I really need you brother to have this this, this pastor on your show to talk about what he went through, what he saw. And so at that particular time, the state of Florida Attorney General and uh, this professor from uh, Florida University started to, well, the Attorney General made available the funds to start exhuming the bodies. And they found these boys' bodies with bullet holes. Now, 50 years later, because they bought the cadaver dogs in, You know, they found body coffins where there shouldn't have been any coffins. But this story was on every major news, television, magazine, Mother Jones People magazine. And to this day, if it wasn't for blog, talk, radio shows, the black boy's story would not have been told because once again now, Mainstream
4: media refused to pick it up. The, 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 the um, Because, uh, you know, I, I read in the different published reports that they brought archaeologists down there to exhume the bodies and look at the bones of a lot of these boys. Now, it mentioned that um, from 1940s, now, I know that things, because you mentioned that this school had been in existence from, uh, I think you said 1901 till it closed. Yeah, clo-
9: 1901.
4: Till it so closed in 2011. 2011. So I know that from 1901 to 1940s, it was a lot of atrocities. But that it said mm-hmm. that they kind of documented atrocities from the 40s to the 60s and found that uh, even during the late 50s and 60s, that a lot of the students that was involved in sit-ins and things like that was taken to that uh, Dozier school, a uh, reform school. Yes, for civil rights
9: activists, yeah. yeah.
4: You know, in your work, when you went down there and uncovered a lot of these things and put it out there, uh, I know that you went back. What, did, what was the explanation given to some of the parents? Did they ever know where their children was taken? Did any word ever come back saying why a child, uh, was deceased, uh, an accident, Did they, was there any explanation given to any of the parents that you interviewed or talked to?
9: Yeah, some of the, the, the well, what, what Pastor Gatty and some of the other guys said, they would make the boys write home and tell their parents everything was okay. If a child went missing, they'll, they'll write home and tell, them, tell their parents or call them and say, well, your boy ran away. We have no idea where you at. Okay. You know, and some of those boys lived about three, 400 miles from the school. And some of them, um, when they went missing, that's all they said, but they never could give any accountability. So now you remember now from 1900, 1940, a lot of their parents is deceased. So the people who was really looking for them now, would have been their brothers and sisters.
4: Okay, all right.
9: A lot of the parents who died, they had no idea what happened to their sons, and that was both black and white. They had no idea. So when they start to find children with uh, bullet holes, and you can see that, you know, in some of those fragments of the bones that there was bullet holes, that um, in those uh, remains. But all the men who I have interviewed, they have a lot of psychological problems. Okay. A lot of abuse, just like the brother who called him from Jamaica. The healing, because as Pastor Gaggett said, he kept this inside of him for fifty years until he met with me because nobody would believe him. And that's the that's the problem that I have ran into. With stories like this, nobody believes you. So they keep it to themselves. Those that don't, that do not become alcoholics or abuse their wives and, you know, uh, feel like their manhood is extinct because they had been abused as little boys, they had these children, you know, uh, having sex with these kids, had these kids give them oral sex. Oh, it was all mentioned, you know, in the, in, in the
4: interviews wow
9: so there was two types of screams that was coming out of the sunshine state of florida one was the kids that was amused by the amusement parks and then there was those that was drowned out their cries was drowned out by the sound of laughter because we're this is a place where the thing parks but on the other hand at dozer these boys was crying out because they was abused, they was beat, they was worked like mules and and modern-day slaves.
4: Fed the alligators and, and thrown in hog pens. Wow. Mm-hmm.
8: As I, as I listen to you, sister, um, the thing that comes to my mind um, as you so um, eloquently really make us feel, uh, again, the experience in order to make us um, connected to um what is going on you know um I raised the question with myself and I like to raise it with you you know there's a lot of depiction of slavery now or in in the popular culture do you think that they're addressing the um this 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 reality as you have co- uncovered in the documentation through the your genealogical work no, I know they're not.
1: They were yeah.
9: addressed uh, hmm. child labor. They were addressed human trafficking, but until we bring it to the forefront, we mm-hmm. speaking about we people that look like us. Okay, it will continue to happen to our children. If I'm not mistaken, I don't know if it was Minnesota. I think it was. They just passed a law with the Department of Education in in that state that if a child fights in school, that child can be charged with a felony. Mm -hmm. So it's a setup again. But because we don't know our history, there's a, a saying "Say history has a way of repeating itself. And then go back a little bit deeper. The scriptures say there's nothing new under the sun but we are not hearing it because we think it just happened. See, I'm so scared. I'm so scared that I can still feel the lashes on my back from my ancestors because I know so much that I'm wondering, when is it going to happen again? I can't get too comfortable because I know it's getting ready to happen again. And who do I tell? Or oh, that she go? and I don't know, you know, what she be talking about. She's weird. She's strange, and you got to and 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 a person like me. I got to be able to deal with that. Deal with it. And sometimes when I cry on the pillow at night, I'm saying, "Father, you call me to this work, but who can I tell?"
4: Well, your work yeah. is not going. Your your work is not going unnoticed, Sister Roe
8: and 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 i i want to point out as i um look through your um i think that's uh one of the the where your collection one of the places your collection is uh and how um thorough, I'm looking at these the, i think it's seven boxes you have and what you put in there, which is a testament that your the work that you're doing will have continuity because you recognize the importance to be able to Catalog it and place it so that we have it some place to go to get it. Um, exactly. um, how important that is!
9: You see, because what happened with, with 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 Brother Malcolm, his papers end up in in a store place and one of those rental places, and it could have been auctioned off if it wasn't for Alex Haley. Well. Different than that movement, in that time with Dr. King and all other, you know, pioneering crusaders was doing work, I had an aneurysm. And when the creator allowed me to, to survive a an aneurysm in the head, the first thing I said, almighty creator, you have brought me back here. Now I got all these papers. I got to do something with them. Because I knew my two sons did not understand the importance. They would look up there, look at it and say, what was mama doing with all of that stuff? And it could not end up outside on the trash. So as I collect, and as I it, it goes a little bit further, I got to tell the story. I got to write history. I got to rewrite history. Because in some places, it wasn't even told. So if I'm going to make a difference, because students are going to come, People are going to come, and they're going to find that material. And that's why when I go and I make these repositories, and then I go back once a year to check on
4: Name the two places where your collections is held, uh, a Sister L.
9: Okay, one of the places that the collection is held is at the Amistad Research Center in New Orleans, Louisiana. Then the second place that one of my repositories is at Southeastern Louisiana Louisiana University. And the reason for Southeastern, because some of the work that I collect in the the Florida parishes of Louisiana, the people come from those areas. It's not easy to get collections started for black folks. The third way that I I share my, my work is electronically in blogs that I write. Because then those that live far away, if they're looking for their family members, they can type in, you know, these areas, and if there's something, they'll find it. Okay. So, I can, and I'm proud to say that as of today, there was about 128,000 people from around the world that has read the blogs on people in this area, black folks in these areas. See, I live in the areas where the the deacons of the fence came from, in, 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 in
4: Washington. Okay.
9: You see, the deacons of the fence was marching. They marched from here, from Washington Parish to Baton Rouge, and you know what? That happened before Stelma, Alabama. But you see, nobody talk about those that issue because the folks here might be still too afraid. And so I know I was chosen to come back here in a parish that's hard, in a region that's hard. But you see, if I said, I said this, if I died doing it, then my dying ain't in vain. Okay. I got to die for something rather than just, hey, look, you know, I didn't leave. I got to leave my footprint and a legacy. But most of all, leave the footprint because one will come. If it's two generations from now, one will come.
4: Sister Rell, during the uh, Hurricane Katrina, did any of your records get damaged?
9: No. I had moved according to what the creator told me. He said, move out of New Orleans. I want you to go. And, and I said, Father, you want me to go and live where? In a small town? I don't know nobody. There's no cultural things going on. And I still live here. Okay because I'm near the work. I'm I'm near Mississippi with a Herbal Lee story and I want you to look up Herbal Lee. Herbal Lee was killed uh during the time of Snick and Core. He was killed by a Mississippi state representative at the cotton gin. But Herbal Lee is mentioned in the movie Selma when Meg Evans was talking about Herbal, you know, Herbal Lee and Matter of fact, he went to the funeral. Mm-hmm. And I when I and and when his wife died last year, I went to her funeral. And who did I hear speak? Bob Harris spoke at the funeral. And I'm hearing about he was there when they took the bullet out of his head. So I'm in the place to record the history that white folks ain't gonna tell and black folks ain't gonna tell. I'm in a place where I have to help to open up community centers. So not only do I record the history, but now I got to go back and and help open up community centers and bring in computers and technology for our children.
4: Sister Rell, you know, you mentioned something earlier when we when you were talking about Doja, how you went back into the county records, and saw that they made tons of money uh, out of the Dozier Reform School on these young black boys. Mm -hmm. The thing that's insulting and how they take our people for granted is that they don't hide what they were doing. If you search records, you'll find exactly what they were doing because they record it. I guess they meant. But you gotta they, remember
9: one thing now. Go ahead. You gotta remember now the black coat said you wasn't supposed to go to school. So when they recorded some of this stuff back in the time and period, they wasn't thinking that you was gonna be in you know, those archives looking at no papers. Okay. They know they said well, that's the saying as if you wanna hide something from a black man, put it in the book. You gonna read it. You go in the courthouse, we paying tickets we paying tickets or going to get some marriage license or maybe paying taxes, but. Not
4: searching paid. the records, huh? So, right. So you they know,
9: ain't got
4: nothing to worry about. You know, I thought, <laughs> I thought about uh, you today and the program that we were having because three hours ago, and I just posted it to our uh, Time for Awakening uh, Facebook page. I posted an article that uh, they were given a requiem to. Ringling Brothers Circus
10: Mm -hmm.
4: that has finally went out of business after 146 years. But the thing that that they were saying in the article goes directly to what you're talking about. Because the person that wrote the article and it was a black gentleman, he talked about all the atrocities that Ringling Brothers was doing and this other circus, Mm -hmm. Clyde Beatty Cole, where they were holding black people there. All kind of circus acts. Holding him as peonage, holding them as basically slaves, not paying him anything. You talked about the atrocities that both of those circuses were doing. And they had Well, I
9: was, in, go ahead. I was in the National Archives, and I I ran across the records of uh, Clyde Pettys circus, and and I came across these two brothers, Willie Muse and George Muse. And when I tell you things, I'd like for you to go and look them up. Okay. Well, I came across their records and how they was kidnapped because they, you know, they was the albino twins. Well, they wasn't twins. They looked like they twins. They was, It was albino. They kidnapped them. Well, and made them work in the circles. And they, and there was a girl called Monkey Girl. She didn't have a brain. So they used those people as slaves. Just recently, a woman named by the by the name of Bet Macy had called me. And she wrote a book called True Vine, Two Brothers, A Kidnapping, and A Mother's Quest, A True Story of the Jim Crow South. And in that book, she autographed the book because to me because she she called me for an interview. She said, for, for Antoinette, with great respect for your dog research and your big heart and the generous way in sharing both. Because I had researched those brothers. In the, in the Department of Justice files, FBI files. When I went there to the National Archives, I couldn't believe it. I was in shock. I, I I just couldn't believe I wanted to run somewhere. I wanted to run somewhere. And I remember when I first started doing this work 20 years ago, and as it just escalates to different things, I, at that particular time I had two legs. Now I had a leg amputated, and guess what? Now I got three legs. You know, I got my crutches, and I haven't stopped. Okay. I wear the, the, the rub out on my crutches if you tell me, come do some research. Because I can't, I don't have a choice. I don't have a choice in this matter. Because if my ancestors and our ancestors went through it, and I can't be scared to tell it. I can't be scared to write it. I got to look that thing in the face. Because one thing I know, they can't do to me that something that hasn't already been done. I can't be afraid to live and afraid to die. But then I'm not living. And I can't rejoice and have a good time off the backs of those that have paid the way. And every time I see us make a mockery out of our history, we have no respect for our own history. We make a mockery like the movie Barbershop did. You don't hear the Jews laughing about their atrocity okay. and the Holocaust. But you hear us, we'll make a joke out of it. Man, y'all saw that? You know, who can imagine who, who, but if they are lynchings off. They won't say the word picnic. They won't use the word barbecue. Because if they knew what that meant, somebody was going to be hung that day, they was going to cut their ears off and their fingers and whatever else they could just for a souvenir. And I'm not talking about 100 years ago. In my lifetime, I've been to five lynchings. I'm 56 years old. And I have been called to the spot where five lynchings have taken place. And no 28 just in a prison, in a jail. So I can't ignore it. I can't do it. Because the voices in my head and the people that live in my head, is those people who I open up those file cabinets and let them out. Some of those papers have not been read since the date they was put in it, and whether that's 1840, 1820. The last time somebody picked that document up was the last time it was put in it. And how do I know? Because I haven't been inside the vault. When I go inside a vault, I come out there
4: looking like I done worked on some, in somebody's field because <laughs> the books are that done. Okay. T- two things I, I want to ask you. Book. Two things I want to ask Go you, ahead. and I know Brother Richard probably want to have some uh, things he to kind of because we got it. I guess because we, we, we went over time, but I, I'm, I'm enjoying the conversation, so we're going to stay just a little bit longer if you don't mind. Two things I want to ask you about and your opinions on because I don't know whether you have done work on them, but I know you're aware of them. Uh, the James Byrd lynching that occurred in Texas in the late 90s, mm-hmm. um, I saw a documentary about the town that he was from. And Jackson? yes, and I grew in, up in Philadelphia all my life. I. I just couldn't believe, I I thought I was watching something from the, from 1910 about the environment that some of our people lived in down there and the fear of, of white folks. Now, I want to ask you about James Bird and the environment in Jasper. Also, because we spoke on it briefly on Friday's program, and I want to get your opinion on a horrific event that occurred uh, in the period of the mid to late '70s in Atlanta, and in the an Atlanta area, the Atlanta child murders—the uh, murders of uh, which they have uh, Wayne Williams in jail for now—and <coughs> as it states in public record, that he was convicted of two of the murders, but the murders that he was convicted of was adult. people and they convicted him of fiber evidence they really didn't have any hard evidence to convict him of any of the murders let alone the two he was convicted of had you been in contact or had the families of any of the murdered children ever contacted you or even james bird family just curious no okay
9: well let me tell you in the south now the deep south people still feel white folks here Still, feel white folk. Where I live, it's still. I was so taken by the fact that one day this attorney came to see me, and he was a white. He was a white attorney, so we sitting at the table talking, waiting on the young man to come over. He came. Young man bowed his head. Yes, yeah, sir. Yes, yeah, sir. So I pulled him to the side. I said, look, you don't have to say yes, sir. You don't have to say yes, sir. You don't even have to say mister. Just call him by his name. That's one incident. Another incident, I took some young black men to with me to a conference, and once again I see another uh, colleague, a white attorney from Loyola uh, university. I went, we talked to each other, and the um, the white colleague extended his hand and shake the young man's hand. They said, Mama Antoinette, we can shake his hand? I said, yeah. And they said, we never shook a white man's hand in our life. So just to give you an idea, of what the South is like. So that's why I said, when I asked the creator, you want me to live where? In a place where I wear African wraps. They know what I do. They know I do history. They know I study history. Now, I never had no problem because I'm not a submissive person. But the fear is still here among black people to white people. Don't ask me why, because I don't know why. And the ones who have the still is the ones, I guess, it's just been passed down from generation to generation, because half of the younger people, they haven't seen anything. They don't know nothing about Jim Crow. They don't know nothing about none of that. But it's I I feel like I live on a plantation. Well,
10: wow.
9: I live on a plantation. I'm not very far from where I live. I have uh, somebody gave me some coins, sharecropper coins, and it was 1963 when he went to the ice cream parlor, went to get him some ice cream, and he got these sharecropper coins in his hand, and um, and he went to go, he went to pay for the ice cream. And the white man told him, Nigga, I know you must be losing your mind. So the young man now, he's eighteen, he had never seen he had never seen US mint. He did not see a nickel or any kind of US current until ninth until he went to the service.
4: How long ago was this, uh, Sister Cesareal?
9: How long ago was what, the coin? No,
4: this this incident, you're speaking of.
9: This was in 63 when it happened with him. Okay. I got, somebody in the area gave me some of the coin. So when I go and lecture, I take the coin. Okay. Because to show that the people was working 40 hours, 50 hours a week and couldn't get off the plantation, couldn't go nowhere, couldn't take a train to leave. Because you don't even have U.S. currency. That's what I'm saying. These plantations made their own money. They own worthless money that can only be spent at the commissary store on the plantation. Hmm.
4: Brother
11: Richard.
4: Brother Richard. Oh, we must have lost Brother Richard. Uh, uh, Sister Rell, give out any information if people want to contact you, if they have a group that needs uh, some direction as far as uh, how to uh, start their genealogical search. Any information you want to give to our listening audience? Give it out to us. Yes,
9: they can, they can basically reach me at 504 858 six. That's 504-858-4658. They can follow me on Facebook with Antoinette Africa Harrell. And I do have a website, com.
4: So, Sorrell, I'm being, I'm going to be in touch with you. I want to talk with you about some other issues that, uh, that I touched on with you off the air. And also, I want to get information on uh, the reverend that, uh, that shared only. with you some, some of the atrocities at the uh, the Doja Reform School for Black Boys. Um, I think it'll thank be interesting. Thank you so
9: much for, think, for having me as a guest on your show. And I look forward to helping you to get Pastor Gatty on your show.
4: I'll be in touch with you soon. And I thank you for being All with right. us.
9: Thank you, and thank everyone for tuning in tonight.
4: We'll be right back.
7: 5-8-8-5-2-4-4-4. That number is two one five eight eight five two four four four. Two one five eight eight five two four four four. All Insurance Incorporated.
0: Peace is Professor Griff from Public Enemy.
1: People keep saying black people need to do this and black people need to do that. Well, frankly speaking, I think it's a whole lot of talk, a whole lot of philosophy and a whole lot of head nodding. But where is the action? I'm suggesting everyone that's within the sound of my voice, we need to get on board with this national black economic empowerment movement. Let's Buy Black, 365.com. That's Let's Buy Black 365.com. This is Professor Griffin, Public Enemy, and I'm out. Peace.
5: History is a clock that people use to tell their political and cultural time of day. It is also a compass that people use to find themselves on the map of human geography.
4: 7 p.m. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. And uh, I want to thank our guest that was with us this evening, author, activist, and genealogist. Antoinette Harrell was with us today to share with us her work uh, in the genealogical front and also her work as a social activist. Uh, Brother Richard.
8: Yes, yes brother.
4: Yeah, some of the yes. things that uh Sister Rell was talking about was um uh, I wouldn't say shocking but eye opening.
8: Oh, yes. Yeah. And 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 like he's uh like she was saying and 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 I think she uh, emphasized it very um powerfully that our our story um and I and I like the the for me the comparison of our stories and the blues which came out of that delta how something so painful can be so joyful and only when i say joyful from the point of her making that disco- those discoveries and the importance for us to make those discoveries as you're doing with your with your family there is joy in describe in defi- finding that 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 pain once we get past the moment of that pain to be satisfied to know um to answer that that could be able to answer that question of who we are and where we came from. Yeah, I, yeah
4: you're, you're right. I, um, it was an interesting conversation I had with her. It's off the air. And, and I knew that I wanted to have her on to, uh, to talk about her story and talk about her work and share it with the listening audience. Because I think it's important for them to know exactly what's going on. Uh, you know, she mentioned that a lot of the uh, black media would not talk about a lot of these issues. And we have to realize that a lot of the terrestrial black media is controlled by whites. Uh, mm-hmm. They determine the stories, by and large, to a certain extent, that uh, that black media talks about. The stories that they dig into. They might not control every story, but they do control a certain amount of stuff that's put out to the public. Uh, the editors and things of that nature uh, determine stuff that's going to be put out and how it's put out. So, you know... I'm going to always utilize this program and this media to tell our stories, to get information out that the people may or may not be aware of and to, to talk about it, to talk about these issues, put them out there for public discussion.
8: And there's solutions that can come out of those. Certainly um, there, there's solutions that can come out of that because I'm thinking of, you know, in our involvement with one in a million, one of the things is the plank is, about African-centered education, right? Mm-hmm. And what is more African-centered than um, young people that are if the in these schools, if they were as a part of their uh, rights of passage curriculum are doing their genealogical work. Um, I know for uh, certain is once um, the school was involved with that they do have even starting in, in kindergarten, and first grade, having them to kind of start to develop their family tree. But when we're talking about getting to the sixth and eighth grade and what she was saying, which is so powerful, that here we have documents from 1840, 50, 60, that they haven't been touched and our stories are in it, which means we don't have the students going into those professions, you know, at the graduate and postgraduate um, level so that they would be able to uncover this information as we're talking about the need for education and the need for curriculum and the need for a set that these things become critical
4: to us yeah Yeah. you're absolutely right uh you know uh, and 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 she touched on it when she was talking to you at a question that you had asked her that she addressed about being in court um right. it's it's certain individuals uh that have contacted her to if they work for companies, especially during the peonage period and, right. uh, and was taken advantage of that, they would call her in to prove not only that they, uh, work for these, these individuals, but to trace it all the way back to the plantation. And they would call her in to, for genealogical evidence. That's what she touched on with you in the conversation Matt, that you were having. Matt, so Matt, Matt, is
8: it her, the, uh, that's one thing when I was looking at her, um, collection she has the documents of that of that court case Mm -hmm. um in there and and it's also which i thought was interesting the reason why i I, I kind of brought it up because in another um person dealing with um, um the genealogy using dna which is another approach to be able to get into your ancestry um that a lot of people are using uh alidra nelson wrote a book, The Social the social Life of DNA, and she dealt with that case and that testimony that she was speaking on in that book, um, which just came out last year. So um, her work is being, you know, disseminated around these cases and, and being critical to developing this whole issue around reparations.
4: Exactly, exactly, because as she stated, you know, it, it might not be enough for us to say that our people came from the continent, and uh, you know we were brought here. Uh, you know, you need document uh, you need it documented, and there mm-hmm. is documentation of uh, the activities that has happened with Europeans once they brought our people here. I mean, mm-hmm. I you know the little bit of stuff mm-hmm. that I seen doing my search, and I'm, I'm I'm going to talk talk with her off the air so she can kind of guide me a little bit further. But the little bit of evidence I've seen of how they had my ancestors listed in in the uh, property records. One guy, mm-hmm. uh, 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 and I could see that the, the, the one white guy that had my ancestors on a plantation willed all of his belongings to his son. And he had it listed there. Chairs, uh, 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 a dining room set, pigs. Uh, he had a number of chickens. And then he had some of my ancestors. Now, I'm not sure whether my great-great-grandfather was one of those men. That's still my search. But Mm. somebody's ancestors was listed there, along with property. So, you know, (laughs) that type of stuff, when you see that in writing, Richard, it kind of like, it knocks your socks off, man. And
8: and for us to understand that, as you say, willing and property, that that was like transferring a CD. Because Africans were property that had value. So when that person, that father willed it to that son, he was giving him wealth. Mm-hmm. Just just giving him items, he was giving him wealth. Wealth that was in, valued in another person. And which is like being able to get a credit card with your name on it or, or, you know, or a CD with your name on it, which means you can turn it in and get more cash if you needed it. That you know, um, as you said, when we go through the history and see this, and as she said, it does at times bring tears, tears to your eyes. To not just the lynching and what, how systemic this is. Mm-hmm. You know, when she said that, there, you know, the moment, and I and I appreciate how she developed it in the moment right now that in that area, because the Trump, the Trump era, the Trump era. It has brought to the table people from that area. Those areas, they the ones that said they want to get back, and that's as she's saying, that's a project that never ends. The South said they had to, re- they will, one, they want to return, <laughs> and they targeted them like Nixon targeted them when they moved them from the 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 Democratic Party to the Republican Party with the what was called the Southern Strategy.
4: Mm-hmm. Well, the uh the struggle continues, man. We um Friday I, I talked with uh, the conscious roster, Brother Kidi Wadu. He's supposed to join us on Friday, Brother Richard. Uh uh-huh. I want to share with you some of the information that uh that he wanted to bring to the table. But uh we'll talk about it. And the listening audience to tune in on Friday at eight o'clock. Uh, time for Awakening will be here with the Conscious Roster. He'll be joining us, Brother Keedy Awad, who will be joining us. And then uh, on Sunday at our regular time, we'll have another uh, interesting program for you. I want to thank the listening audience for being with us this evening. Lively discussion, as always, and we'll be back on Friday, Lord willing, to continue on this path towards an awakening. Peace. Peace.
3: Driving through the country on a lazy afternoon, or you're watching your children play.